Chapter Ten of In Freedom's Cause. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. In Freedom's Cause by G. A. Henty. Chapter Ten: The Battle of Falkirk. While Wallace was endeavouring to restore order in Scotland, Edward was straining every nerve to renew his invasion. Edward himself was upon the continent, but he made various concessions to his barons and great towns to induce them to aid him heartily, and issued writs calling upon the whole nobility remaining at home, as they valued his honour and that of England, to meet at York on January 20th, and proceed under the Earl of Surrey to repress and chastise the audacity of the Scots. At the same time he dispatched special letters to those of the Scottish nobles who were not already in England commanding them to attend at the rendezvous as well. The call upon the Scotch nobles was not generally responded to. They had lost much of their power over their vassals, many of whom had fought under Wallace in spite of the abstention of their lords. It was clear, too, that if they joined the English, and another defeat of the latter took place, their countrymen might no longer condone their treachery, but their titles and estates might be confiscated. Consequently, but few of them presented themselves at York. There, however, the English nobles gathered in force, the earls of Surrey, Gloucester, and Arundel, the Earl Marshal of the Great Constable were there. Guido, son of the Earl of Warwick, represented his father. Percy was there, John de Wathy, John de Seagrave, and very many other barons, the great array consisting of two thousand horsemen heavily armed, twelve hundred light horsemen, and one hundred thousand foot soldiers. Sir Aymer de Valance, Earl of Pembroke, and Sir John Seward, son of the Earl of March, landed with an army in Fife, and proceeded to burn and waste. They were met by a Scotch force under Wallace in the forest of Black Ironside, and were totally defeated. Surrey's army crossed the border, raised the siege of Roxborough, and advanced as far as Kelso. Wallace did not venture to oppose so enormous a force, but wasted the country on every side, so that they could draw no provisions from it, and Surrey was forced to fall back to Berwick, this town was being besieged by a Scottish force which retired at his approach. Here the English army halted upon receipt of orders from Edward to await his coming. He had hastily patched up a peace with France, and, having landed at Sandwich, summoned the Parliament, and on the 27th of May issued writs to as many as 154 of his great barons to meet him at Roxburgh on the 24th of June. Here three thousand cavalry, men and horses clothed in complete armour, four thousand lighter cavalry, the riders being armed in steel but the horses being uncovered, five hundred splendidly mounted knights and men-at-arms from Gascony, and at least eighty thousand infantry assembled together, with abundance of materials and munition of war of all kinds. This huge army marched from Roxborough, keeping near the coast, receiving provisions from a fleet which sailed along beside them. But in spite of this precaution it was grievously straitened, and was delayed for a month near Edinburgh, as Wallace so wasted the country that the army was almost famished, and by no efforts were they able to bring on a battle with the Scots, whose rapid marches and intimate acquaintance with the country baffled all the efforts of the English leaders to force on an action. Edward was about to retreat, being unable any longer to subsist his army, when the two Scottish earls of Dunbar and Angus sent news to the king that Wallace, with his army, was in Falkirk Forest, about six miles away, and had arranged to attack the camp on the following morning. The English at once advanced, and that evening encamped at Lilnithgow, and the next morning moved on against the Scots. 
Late in the evening Archie's scouts brought in the news to Wallace that the English army was within three miles, and the consultation was at once held between the leaders. Most of them were in favour of a retreat, but Common of Badenoch, who had lately joined Wallace, and had been from his rank appointed to the command of the cavalry with some of his associates, urged strongly the necessity for fighting, saying that the men would be utterly dispirited at such continual retreats, and that with such immensely superior cavalry the English would follow them up and destroy them. To these arguments Wallace, Sir John Graham, and Sir John Stuart yielded their own opinions and prepared to fight. They took up their positions so that their front was protected by a morass, and defensive stakes and ropes was also fixed across so as to impede the advance or retreat of the English cavalry. The Scotch army consisted almost entirely of infantry. These were about a third the number of those of the English, while Cummins' cavalry were about a thousand strong. The infantry were formed in three great squares or circles, the front rank kneeling and the spears all pointing outwards. In the space between these squares were placed the archers under Sir John Stuart. The English army was drawn up in three divisions, the first commanded by the Earl Marshal, the Earl of Lincoln and Hereford, the second by Beck, the warlike Bishop of Durham, and Sir Ralph Bassett, the third by the King himself. The first two divisions consisted almost entirely of knights and men-at-arms, the third of archers and slingers. Wallace's plan of battle was that the Scottish squares should first receive the brunt of the onslaught of the enemy, and that while the English were endeavouring to break these, the Scotch cavalry, which were drawn up some distance in the rear, should fall upon them when in a confused mass, and drive them against the fence or into the morass. The first division of the English, on arriving at the bog, made a circuit to the west. The second division, seeing the obstacle which the first had encountered, moved round to the east, and both fell upon the Scottish squares. The instant they were seen rounding the ends of the morass, the traitor common, with the whole of the cavalry, turned rein and fled from the field, leaving the infantry alone to support the whole brunt of the attack of the English. So impetuous was the charge of the latter, that Sir John Stuart and his archers were unable to gain the shelter of the squares, and he was with almost all his men slain by the English men-at-arms. Thus the spearmen were left entirely to their own resources. Encouraged by Wallace, Graham, Archie Forbes, and their other leaders, the Scottish squares stood firmly, and the English cavalry in vain strove to break the hedge of spears. Again and again the bravest of the chivalry of England tried to hew a way through. The Scots stood firm and undismayed, and had the battle lain between them and the English cavalry, the day would have been theirs. But presently the king, with his enormous body of infantry, arrived on the ground, and the English archers and slingers poured clouds of missiles into the ranks of the Scots. While the English spearmen, picking up the great stones with which the ground was strewn, hurled them at the front ranks of their foes. Against this storm of missiles the Scottish squares could do nothing. Such armour as they had was useless against the English cloth-yard arrows, and thousands fell as they stood. Again and again they closed up their ranks, but at last they could no longer withstand the hail of arrows and stones, to which they could offer no return. Some of them wavered. The gaps in the squares were no longer filled up, and the English cavalry, who had been waiting for their opportunity, charged into the midst of them. No longer was there any thought of resistance. The Scots fled in all directions. Numbers were drowned by trying to swim the river Carron, which ran close by. Multitudes were cut down by the host of English cavalry. Sir Archie Forbes was in the same square with Wallace, with a few other mounted men. 
They dashed forward against the English as they broke through the ranks of the spearmen, but the force opposed them was overwhelming. "'It's of no use, Archie. We must retire. Better that than throw away our lives uselessly. All is lost now.' Wallace shouted to the spearmen, who gallantly rallied round him, and keeping together in spite of the efforts of the English cavalry, succeeded in withdrawing from the field. The other squares were entirely broken and dispersed, and scarce a man of them escaped. Accounts vary as to the amount of the slaughter, some English writers placing it as double that of the army which Wallace could possibly have brought into the field, seeing that the whole of the great nobles stood aloof, and that Graham, Stuart, and Macduff of Fife were the only three men of noble family with him. All these were slain, together with some twenty-five thousand infantry. Wallace, with about five thousand men, succeeded in crossing a ford of the Carron, and the English spread themselves over the country. The districts of Fife, Clackmannan, Lanark, Ayr, and all the surrounding country were wasted and burnt, and every man found put to the sword. The Scots themselves, in retreating, destroyed Stirling and Perth, and the English found the town of St. Andrews deserted and burnt it to the ground. No sooner had Wallace retreated than he divided his force into small bands, which proceeded in separate directions, driving off the cattle and destroying all stores of grain so that in a fortnight after the Battle of Falkirk the English army were again brought to a stand by shortness of provisions, and were compelled to fall back again with all speed to the mouth of the Forth, there to obtain provisions from their ships. As they did so, Wallace reunited his bands, and pressed hard upon them. At Linlithgow he fell upon their rear and inflicted heavy loss, and so hotly did he press them that the great army was obliged to retreat rapidly across the border, and made no halt until it reached the fortress of Carlisle. That it was compulsion alone which forced Edward to make his speedy retreat, we may be sure, from the fact that after the victory of Dunbar, he was contented with nothing less than a clean sweep of Scotland to its northern coast, and that he repeated the same process when, in the year following the Battle of Falkirk, he again returned with a mighty army. Thus decisive as was the Battle of Falkirk, it was entirely abortive in results. When the English had crossed the border, Wallace assembled the few gentlemen who were still with him, and announced his intention of resigning the guardianship of Scotland and of leaving the country. The announcement was received with exclamations of surprise and regret. "'Surely, Sir William Archie,' exclaimed, "'you cannot mean it. You are our only leader. In you have we have unbounded confidence, and in none else. Had it not been for the treachery of Common, the field of Falkirk would have been ours.' for had the horse charged when the English were in confusion round our squares, they had assuredly been defeated. Moreover, your efforts have retrieved that disastrous field, and have driven the English across the border. My dear Archie, Wallace said, it is because I am the only leader in whom you have confidence that I must needs go. I had vainly hoped that when the Scottish nobles saw what great things the commonality were able to do, and how far, alone and unaided, they had cleared Scotland of her tyrants, they would have joined us with their vassals, but you see it's not so. The successes that I have gained have but excited their envy against me. Of them all only Graham, Stuart, and Macduff stood by my side, while all the great earls and barons either held aloof or were, like Bruce in the ranks of Edward's army, or like Common and his friends, joined me solely to betray me. I'm convinced now that it's only a united Scotland can resist the power of England, and it's certain that so long as I remain here, Scotland never can be united. Of Bruce, I have no longer any hope. But if I retire, Cummin may take the lead, and many at least of the Scottish nobles will follow him. 
Had we but horsemen and archers to support our spearmen, I would not fear the issue. But it's the nobles alone who can place mounted men-at-arms in the field. Of bowmen we must always be deficient, seeing that our people take not naturally to this arm, as do the English. But with the spearmen to break the first shock of English chivalry, and with horsemen to charge them when in confusion, we may yet succeed. But horsemen we shall never get so long as the nobles hold aloof. It's useless to try and change my decision, my friend. Sore grief, though it will be to me to sheathe my sword, and to stand aloof when Scotland struggles for freedom. I am convinced that only by my doing so has Scotland a chance of ultimate success in the struggle. Do not make it harder for me by your pleadings. I have thought long over this, and my mind is made up. My heart is well-nigh broken by the death of my dear friend and brother-in-arms, Sir John Graham, and I feel able to struggle no longer against the jealousy and hostility of the Scottish nobles. Wallace's hearers were all in tears at his decision, but they felt that there was truth in his words, that the Scottish nobles were far more influenced by feelings of personal jealousy and pique than by patriotism, and that so long as Wallace remained the guardian of Scotland, they would to a man side with the English. The next day Wallace assembled all his followers, and in a few words announced his determination and the reasons which had driven him to take it. He urged them to let no feelings of resentment at the treatment he had experienced, or any wrath at the lukewarmness and treachery which had hitherto marked the Scottish nobles, overcome their feeling of patriotism, but to follow these leaders should they raise the banner of Scotland as bravely and devotedly as they had followed him. Then he bade them farewell, and, mounting his horse, rode to the sea-coast and passed over to France. Although he had retired from Scotland, Wallace did not cease from war against the English, but being warmly received by the French king, fought against them both by sea and land, and won much renown among the French. After returning to England, Edward, finding that the Scottish leader still professed to recognize Balliol as king, sent him to the Pope at Rome, having first confiscated all his great possessions in England, and bestowed them upon his own nephew John of Brittany, and during the rest of his life Balliol lived in obscurity in Rome. A portion of the Scottish nobles assembled and chose John Common of Badenoch and John de Soulis as guardians of the kingdom. In the autumn of the following year Edward again assembled a great army and moved north, but it was late, and in face of the approaching winter and the difficulty of forage, many of the barons refused to advance. Edward himself marched across the border, but seeing that the Scots had assembled in force, and that at such a season of the year he could not hope to carry his designs fully into execution, he retired without striking a blow. Thereupon the castle of Stirling, which was invested by the Scots, seeing no hope of relief, surrendered, and Sir William Oliphant was appointed governor. The next spring Edward again advanced with an army even greater than that with which he had before entered Scotland. With him were Alexander of Balliol, son of the late king, who was devoted to the English, Dunbar, Fraser, Ross, and other Scottish nobles. The vast army first laid siege to the little castle of Carlaverock, which, although defended but by sixty men, resisted for some time the assaults of the whole army, but was at last captured. The Scots fell back as Edward advanced, renewing Wallace's tactics of wasting the country, and Edward could get no farther than Dumfries. Here, finding the enormous difficulties which beset him, he made a pretense of yielding with a good grace to the entreaties of the Pope and the King of France that he would spare Scotland. He retired to England and disbanded his army, having accomplished nothing in the campaign save the capture of Carlaverock. The following summer he again advanced with the army, this time supported by a fleet of seventy ships. 
The Scots resorted to their usual strategy, and when winter came the invaders had penetrated no farther than the fourth. Edward remained at Linlithgow for a time, and then returned to England. Sir Simon Fraser, who had been one of the leaders of the English army at Carlaverock, now imitated Comyn's example, and, deserting the English cause, joined his countrymen. The greater part of the English army recrossed the border, and the Scots captured many of the garrisons left in the towns. Sir John Seagrave next invaded Scotland with from twenty to thirty thousand men, mostly cavalry. They reached the neighbourhood of Edinburgh, when Comyn and Fraser advanced against them with eight thousand men, chiefly infantry. The English army were advancing in three divisions, in order better to obtain provisions and forage. After a rapid night march, the Scotch came upon one of them, commanded by Seagrave in person, and conceiving himself sufficiently strong to defeat the Scots unaided by any of the other divisions, Sir John Seagrave immediately gave battle. As at Falkirk, the English cavalry were unable to break through the Scottish pikes. Great numbers were killed or taken prisoners. Seagrave himself being severely wounded and captured with twenty distinguished knights, thirty esquires, and many soldiers. Scarcely was the battle over when the second English division, even stronger than the first, arrived on the field. Encumbered by their prisoners, the Scots were at a disadvantage, and fearing to be attacked by these in the rear, while engaged in front, they slaughtered the greater portion of the prisoners, and, arming the camp-followers, prepared to resist the English onslaught. This failed as the first had done. The cavalry were defeated with great loss by the Scots spearmen, and again many prisoners taken, among them Sir Ralph Manton. The third English division now appeared, and the Scots, worn out by their long march and the two severe conflicts they had endured, were about to fly from the field when their leaders exhorted them to one more effort. The second batch of prisoners were slaughtered, and the pikemen again formed line to resist the English charge. Again were the cavalry defeated, Sir Robert Neville, their leader, slain, with many others, and the whole dispersed and scattered. Sir Robert Manton, who was the king's treasurer, had had a quarrel with Fraser, when the latter was in Edward's service, regarding his pay, and Fraser is said by some historians to have now revenged himself by slaying Sir Robert Manton, his prisoner. Other accounts, however, represent Manton as having escaped. The slaughter of the prisoners appears, although cruel, to have been unavoidable, as the Scots, having before them a well-appointed force fully equal to their own in number, could not have risked engaging with so large a body of prisoners in their rear. None of the knights or other leaders were slain, these being subsequently exchanged or ransomed, as we afterwards find them fighting in the English ranks again. Seeing by this defeat that a vast effort was necessary to conquer Scotland, King Edward advanced in the spring of 1303 with an army of such numbers that the historians of the time content themselves with saying that it was great beyond measure. It consisted of English, Welsh, Irish, Gascons, and Savoyards. One division, under the Prince of Wales, advanced by the west coast, that of the King by the east, and the two united at the fourth without meeting any serious resistance, the great host marched north through Perth and Dundee to Brecon, where the castle, under the charge of Sir Thomas Mayle, resisted for twenty days, and it was only after the death of the governor that the castle surrendered. The English then marched north through Aberdeen, Banff, and Moray into Caithness, carrying utter destruction everywhere. Towns and hamlets, villages and farmhouses were alike destroyed, crops were burned, forests and orchards cut down, Thus was the whole of Scotland wasted, and even the rich abbeys of Aberbrodoch and Dumferline 
the richest and most famous in Scotland were destroyed, and the whole leveled to the ground. The very fields were as far as possible injured, the intention of Edward being, as Fordun says, to blot out the people, and to reduce the land to a condition of irrevocable devastation, and thus to stamp out forever any further resistance in Scotland. During the three years which had elapsed since the departure of Wallace, Archie had for the most part remained quietly in his castle, occupying himself with the comfort and well-being of his vassals. He had, each time the English entered Scotland, taken the field with a portion of his retainers, in obedience to the summons of Common. The latter was little disposed to hold valid the grants made by Wallace, especially in the case of Archie Forbes, the curs being connections of his house. But the feeling of the people in general was too strongly in favour of the companion of Wallace, for Common to venture to set it aside especially as the castle could not be captured without a strong and continued siege. Archie and many of the nobles hostile to the claims of Common, nonetheless obeyed his orders, he being the sole possible leader at present of Scotland. Edward, however, had left them no alternative, since he had, in order to induce the English nobles to follow him, formally divided among them the lands of the whole of Scotch nobles, saving those actually fighting in his ranks. Archie was now nearly three-and-twenty, and his frame had fully borne out the promise of his youth. He was over the average height, but appeared shorter from the extreme breadth of his shoulders. His arms were long and sinewy, and his personal strength immense. From the time of his first taking possession of Aberfilly, he had kept a party of men steadily engaged in excavating a passage from the castle toward a wood a mile distant. The ground was soft and offered but few obstacles, but the tunnel throughout its length had to be supported by massive timbers. Wood, however, was abundant, and the passage had by this time been completed. Whenever, from the length of the tunnel, the workmen began to suffer from want of air, ventilation was obtained by running a small shaft up to the surface. In this was placed a square wooden tube of six inches in diameter, round which the earth was again filled in, a few rapidly growing plants and bushes being planted round the orifice, to prevent its being noticed by any passer-by. End of chapter 10. The Battle of Falkirk. Recording by Mike Harris.